Lord, um, this, is, uh, this is special most of all because Jesus lives. He ascended to your right hand. He rules. He reigns. He will forevermore, and he reigns in this moment, in this very moment where your word is open, and he will be proclaimed as um, crucified and risen and reigning. So um, do as you wish in our lives. We know that your desires for us are good, and you're gracious, and you're God. So we submit to you in Jesus' name, amen. And if all that's true, which it is, then I've got to ask you this morning, what are you worried about right now? Maybe not necessarily right now in this moment, but what about right now in this particular season of life? What's consuming you? What's distracting you during the day? What's keeping you up at night? What's stealing your joy? What's causing you to struggle or doubt or, or fear? It's not difficult to come up with a list, is it? Is it your job? Money, health, church, marriage, kids, the future, politics, More importantly, because we're not just here to unload our worries on each other and find somehow in a twisted way, find the unloading process in and of itself to be therapeutic. Where are you grounding yourself so that you don't sink in the quicksand of worry and fear and anxiety? Brothers and sisters, support from other brothers and sisters in Jesus is wonderful, it is necessary, Preaching from the word is mandatory, and it's nourishing, and it's stabilizing. But what I'm asking you this morning is where you go when it's just you. And obviously, I mean, obviously the place that I'm going to always drive you is, I'm sure your pastors do, I know they do, is to God and to his son, and to his cross, and to the empty tomb, and the power, and the grace of the indwelling spirit through the word. So when I ask you where you go when it's just you, and life, and worries, and doubts, and fears, and anxieties, I mean, where do you go in your thoughts about God in those moments? And not just that, but where in scripture do you base your thoughts about God in those moments so that you know that the God you're going to is not just a figment of your imagination, who you hope he will be or who you hope he is in that moment. In other words, do you believe that God is sovereign and not just sovereign, but do you believe that God is also good? And more importantly, do you believe that God is good and sovereign both always at the same time? And is that belief more than just an anxious, baseless hope for you that truly, truly manifests itself in life in the course of your sufferings? The reality that life is hard and can be confusing and takes unexpected turns and gets tense and drives us continually to the brink. 
feel like I live on the brink. Leads us this morning to a chapter of the Bible that is a refuge for God's people because it grounds us in God's sovereign goodness toward us. We've heard the text read when you were reading the first part of it. I thought I should apologize for (laughs) all the names in the text, but then it just turns toward beauty and wonder and amazing revelation of God. I'm sure you picked up on a few of the very familiar verses, especially toward the end of it, but the, the, one that, the one that I'm ultimately going after this morning is verse 11. So let me reread it, and then we'll try to work to set it in its place so that we can benefit from what it's saying to drive us to cast all of our cares upon our God, as Peter says, because he not only cares for us, but he's actually fully able and competent and willing and delights to care for us. So here's verse 11 once again. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This verse always strikes me as the Old Testament equivalent to another treasured verse from the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Both verses remind us that God is sovereign and that he's good and that God is faithful to himself and to his own and that God is unstoppable in his purposes and that God has the good of his people in mind in everything that he does. So let's establish two boundaries before we move on this morning into our text as we ultimately join the nation of Judah in captivity. The the first um, may surprise you, Um, because it's not terminology that we typically use or that I was even introduced to for about the first 15 years of my Christian life. You have um, better teaching here than I was exposed to. You, so you, it's probably, maybe it's not new to you, but it may require some explanation. The first boundary. The captivity was what it was, first and foremost, because God is faithful to himself. And because he is faithful to himself, first and foremost, he's faithful to his people. Now, if that language is new to you, what I mean by that is before time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to redeem lost sinners. And it wasn't just an, okay, guys, be watching for an opportune time kind of plan. It was an intentional, planned out, mapped out, sealed with an oath, revealed in time and over time plan. His plan is kind of like the forest So that when the tree of the southern kingdom of Judah follows her older sister Israel into sin and idolatry, God either lets them destroy themselves or God intervenes to follow through with his plan to redeem his people by crushing the head of the serpent through the seed of Eve and the family of Abraham and through the tribe of Judah and in the line of the Davidic kings. 
So the Babylonian captivity is first and foremost an expression of God's good intentions toward his people in preserving for them a future and a hope because Jesus had not yet come and lived and atoned for sin and risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. So if God lets sinful Judah destroy herself, brothers and sisters, there is no incarnation. There is no sinless life. There is no atoning death. There is no resurrection. Salvation is lost and God's plan is aborted. So captivity with the promise of return and restoration is mercy, brothers and sisters. It's mercy. Second, simultaneously, much more obviously, The captivity was, in fact, a temporary chastening for Judah's sin that was ultimately designed to open their eyes once again to their God to bring them to repentance and faith. So those are kind of step way back boundaries that have to be in place. You're going to get lost focusing on this particular tree in the forest of God's good and sovereign plan called the 70-year captivity. Now, for some context. You may remember from chapter 1 that God knew Jeremiah and set him apart as a prophet before he formed him in his mother's womb. And God made his calling known to him when Jeremiah was just a teenager. At the same time, when a comparatively young king was on the throne. So just to provide some context We learn from chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the 13th year of Josiah's reign. And Josiah is about 21 years old at this time. So it came to him from the 13th year of Josiah's reign to the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. Again, if you remember correctly, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. And the 11th year of his reign was his last year as king. Zedekiah was on the throne when Jerusalem is taken by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah 29 takes place while Zedekiah is on the throne. So late in the hour of Jeremiah's prophecy and late in the hour before the final decisive blow comes from Babylon to Jerusalem. The majority of Jeremiah chapter 29 is actually a letter that Jeremiah writes to those who'd already been taken captive to Babylon. That's verses 4 through 28. may also be helpful to know that Jeremiah has been preaching to these people for over 30 years that God was sending Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to invade their cities and carry them away captive, partly as a judgment for their sins against him. And partly as an expression of his mercy toward them with the imagery of him holding out his hand to them and calling them to faithfully obey his word concerning how they were to live in exile. If you remember correctly, God commanded them, do not resist your captors. He says, if you do resist them, I will grant them power to use the sword to hunt you down. I will send famine and pestilence into the land, and your life will be, this is paraphrased, your life will be worse if you try to escape than it will be if you surrender, which is what God was calling them to do, surrender to the Babylonians. 
In the end, some obey and surrender, and these are now the captives in Babylon to whom Jeremiah is writing chapter 29. God's mercy toward them in their captivity can even be seen in that they remain together in Babylon and they're allowed to have their own leaders in their exile. They're even allowed to interact with and receive gifts from the messengers who are sent by the king of their own land. And look, I am not minimizing the fact that they're captives here, all right? But I am reminding us that God ordained this situation for their good and God ruled over it in absolute mercy. And whether or not they believed would be revealed in their obedience or their disobedience a lot like it still is with us every day of our lives. As we get into the letter itself, we learn that in addition to the mercies we've already seen, the people of Judah have freedom to build houses, plant gardens, grow and eat their own fruit, get married, have kids. In a sense, it almost sounds like the blessings they refused while they were in Judah are offered to them again, only now in a different land. So I'll read verses 4 through 7 to you, which tell you most of what I've already just said, plus two important commands that I left out. Verses 4 through 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and bear sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not diminish and seek the peace of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace Peace shall be to you. And that last command is crucial, as odd as it seems. It is crucial in keeping the first ten commands in those verses in perspective. Without the command to seek and pray for the peace of Babylon, the people of Judah could have approached their obedience to these commands with conceit or condescension or even revenge toward their captors as opposed to the humility and submission and gratitude that's required in God's command to seek the peace and the welfare in Babylon in their building and planting and multiplying. It means... That Judah's prosperity was not designed for this season to come at Babylon's expense, but in coordination with her prosperity and peace. So God commands his people to contribute to and to pray for the peace of the people who overthrew their land and who are holding them captive rather than hoping and praying for their overthrow so that they could be released and go home because God said over and over to them, if going home happens before 70 years are up, life will be much worse for you at home than it will be here. So settle down and keep living. which if I was just teaching a moral lesson would be an awesome model for life. But there's more to it than that. He's saying settle down and keep living because you're going to be here for a while. And if you obey me, I'll bless you. And I'll bless those that I'm using to chasten you, which ultimately for this season is going to result in even greater blessings for you. But just like in Judah, there were false prophets in Babylon 
among the exiles, preaching an entirely different message to them of resistance and return to their land shortly rather than 70 years. So God says in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they prophesy to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. The false prophets were saying, God's going to turn this around soon. And God says, soon, maybe from my perspective, but not soon from yours, not even for most of you, not even in your lifetime. 70 years, then I'll bring you back and do you good. But for the next 70 years, my goodness and my faithfulness toward you is going to be seen in the context of Babylon and submission and servitude. And brothers and sisters, if you have a hard time seeing how submission and servitude for a season could be God's goodness toward his people, we need look no further than Jesus. who being in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You ask the question, how is that goodness and blessing toward him or toward others? Well, verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus rules as resurrected, ascended, exalted king over the world and over a people not only because he created all things, but because he came and reconciled all things to himself by his death on the cross. And brothers and sisters, you confess him as risen Lord and exalted King and personal Savior today because for a brief time, Jesus was subjected to humility and servitude to the death for you. So we ultimately need look no further than Jesus to know that God's goodness and blessing is sometimes in and through pain and submission and humility. But we can also look to our text this morning and see it. Because it's here that the verse that everybody loves is found. And it's in the context of God being faithful to a sinful, undeserving, exiled people to whom he pled for decades through various prophets to return to him, but who those people refused again and again and again, and who God is now, therefore, in the process of severely chastening so that he might, in fact, fulfill his promises to them. And brothers and sisters, all that is context for this sentence. Your favorite verse, likely, in Jeremiah chapter 29 is not in the context of ease and security. It's in the context of hardship and suffering and exile, the same context in which many of you find yourselves in this season of life, no doubt. Many of you. 
Everywhere I go, I interact with people going through seasons of just bizarre, unexplained suffering with no end in sight. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is for you in this season. So here are the verses. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, as opposed to the two years that they've been hearing from the false prophets, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and I'll bring you back to this place. And then then you find a word for, which introduces the reason behind what he just said. So why the captivity? Why 70 years? Why Babylon? Why afterwards a return to the land? For, because God says, why is God doing this? God says, because I know the plans that I have for you. This is happening because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He's doing what he's doing to give his people a future and a hope, something they would not have had had God allowed them to continue in sin to self-destruction in Judah. They would have had no future. If God didn't step in, they would have destroyed themselves and they would have cut themselves off and the rest of the world off from God's promises. So stepping in, even though in the moment it it was meant for what could rightly be called on the one hand judgment, it was ultimately mercy because it preserved their future. Which ultimately means it preserved their hope that God would fulfill all of his promises regarding who? The Christ All the way from Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Through the Abrahamic covenant, he'll do do so through a son born from Abraham. Through the tribe of Judah, a king would come and in the line of David. If God leaves them in their sin to destroy themselves, all of that is gone. Again, no incarnation, no atonement, no resurrection, no salvation for any of us, and we today would still be dead in our sin, frantically buying all the time that we can like everyone else who has no hope. All before we inevitably perish forever. God sending his people into exile for 70 years was his faithfulness to himself and his eternal covenant, first and foremost, and its faithfulness to the people of his covenant to turn them back to himself and bless them and give them hope and a future through the promised seed. So take that and start to process your own frustration with your own circumstances in this season of life. And all the time spent trying to get out from under them or change them. All the time spent worrying and stressing and and then throw God's plan for your welfare as his child and his pledge to preserve you from destruction in the backdrop or as the foundation. And brothers and sisters, let it produce in you a spirit-given rest and contentment and joy rather than a dread of whatever is now or a dissatisfaction in what is now or even a fear of what's to come. 
Life is what it is right now for every one of us because God is good and faithful and he's working everything together right now for the good of his people and for our future hope, not because we deserve it, because we're so faithful that it's somehow earned or even reasonable from God, but because Christ was faithful to him on our behalf and therefore earned it for us. That's why it's by grace. So our posture toward God must be one of humility and submission and joy because, brothers and sisters, we know we haven't earned anything that we get in life, but every circumstance is ordained as a generous gift of our Father for our good through His Son. It's a far better and much more biblical and much more satisfying alternative than a life of plotting and scheming to avoid life and trial and duck out from under suffering and find ease. It is a constant temptation for me, I'm sure for you, to look in the mirror and to think, boy, if only, if only I could. And I never like when people say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) I think if Jeremiah could hear us say that, so I'm putting words in his mouth, which is what I don't like, but I think I'm right. You judge for yourself. If Jeremiah heard one of us say, considering the context in which he ministered, boy, if only I could, because the people of Judah were saying, boy, if only we could get back to Judah. And if Jeremiah were here and we were, using words like, boy, if only I could. I think Jeremiah would say, no, that's what they thought. That's what they thought. They thought if we could only get back to the land, life would be good again. We could start over, despite the fact that God said what you want most, which is a way out of this, is not what's best. What's best for you is to see God and to turn to him in repentance and faith where you are, which meant for them in this season in Babylon, not start over with a clean slate in Judah. It's trust God now. Whether life is light and fruitful or whether life is dark and heavy and trying, it is trust now that God is faithful to his eternal plan to force all things together for your good, for your welfare, not your destruction because you've been reconciled to him in Christ and you belong to him. What does it mean for him to have plans of welfare and not of evil and a future and a hope? Again, ultimately, it means to reveal Christ to you and in you. That's his ultimate plan for your welfare and your goodness. And it's through Christ that every other manifestation of God's welfare and goodness comes to you. But look how he says it here. Again, keep verse 11 attached to verse 12. So, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll hear you, which doesn't even sound like a big deal to us because we're wrongly taught that God always hears us when he doesn't. He's told these people over and over again that he doesn't. He won't. He's not obligated to. He's even told Jeremiah, his prophet, not to even bother praying for them because God won't even hear him. 
But now God says, I've sent you to Babylon because that's where I will meet with you again. If you will once again listen to my voice there. So in Judah, where you want to be, I will not hear you. Process that, brothers and sisters. But in Babylon, where I'm sending you, I will hear your prayers. Which means he's using Babylon to bring his people back to prayer toward him. And repentance and faith. Look what else he says. It's another familiar verse, verse 13. And you will seek me and you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart, then I will be found of you, declares the Lord. And I will turn your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've scattered you there, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I took you into exile because you said the Lord has raised up to us prophets in Babylon. Going back to verse 13. The verse that's quoted and memorized as an assurance that anybody can find God at any time if they just search really hard. It's the, you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Is in the context of a God who has, to a degree, hidden himself from his people. He's rejected them and he's refusing to hear their prayers and his promise that they will find him if they search with all all their hearts is not meant to be understood as a tribute to their seeking power, but rather as a tribute to his mercy to make himself known to those who weren't even looking for him. Verse 13 without verse 14 is really bad theology. But verse 13 with verse 14 is glorious. You will seek me and you will find me when you search with all your heart. Don't stop because when you find me, it's not your heart that found me, but it is I that have made myself known to you because I've planned a hopeful future of you knowing me and I remain absolutely faithful to that purpose. That's why verse 14 says, then I will be found of you. In other words, the reason you will find me is because I will make myself known to you. I will reveal myself to you, which is a mercy whenever and to whomever it happens. These verses are testimonies to God and to his mercy and to his grace, not human beings and their seeking power. And the means that God uses to reveal himself to seeking man is the preaching of his word, according to verse 15. They will hear God's voice through the prophets whom he raises up in their midst. Now that was his message through Jeremiah to his people in exile. The rest of the letter is his word to the rebels who remained in in the land. And, And you would obviously benefit from reading it. It's God's word because these were the people who disobeyed God's word for the life that they wanted rather than the one that God wanted for them. Um, It's kind of, it's always strange to me to be a visiting um, speaker at a church and to target a text for, you know, a, a unique kind of standalone sermon, 29 chapters into a book. It's not my favorite thing to jump 29 chapters into a book and to target something in the middle of the chapter. But I do trust that this text may be a help to some, if not to all, because I do think that most of us, if not all of us, if we were honest, do struggle with trust. 
and do struggle with contentment and do struggle with anxiety and do struggle with stress. And who are prone to distracted days and to restless nights. I trust that somehow this text might give us a place to run in those moments. It might lead us a little further down the path of simply taking Jesus at his word when he says these words. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Are you not of more value than the birds of the air to your heavenly Father? Can you add a single hour to your life by being anxious? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, so that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, because, why is all that true? Jeremiah 29, verse 11, because I know the plans that I have for you. Plans of welfare, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. So Covington Baptist, brothers and sisters, be confident that God's plan for you and for this body is your welfare, your good, not for your destruction if he is indeed your Lord. He's designed his plans for you in Christ before the foundation of the world began. And what he does at every moment in life is an expression of his faithfulness to himself and his goodness toward us. So rather than being overcome by anxiety and discontentment and frustration and stress, let his peace, let his rest, let his trust, let his word, let his spirit, let his joy that comes from all those things Fill your hearts this morning and in fact ground you in all the days to come. All the difficult days to come. All the heavy days to come. And all the light and joyful days to come. And that is the end to which I now will pray for you and for myself. Let's pray. Lord, this is a special text to so many people for so long. It's one of those Lord, that when you're reading a really thick book like Jeremiah and so much of it is confusing and hard to wrap your mind around and you get lost in the details of the book and then you find Jeremiah 29 verse 11 and you don't forget it and you go back to it. But Lord, sometimes in that process we lose sight of why it was revealed and spoken in the first place. As many people have said, it's not a coffee cup verse in the context of ease and security. It's a promise to hold on to in the context of hardship and, and struggle and suffering, which describes, Lord, this life of sojourning in exile here on this earth. So give us strength to hang on. Give us strength through this text of your word to hold on, not just another day, but to persevere to the end, holding on for dear life to Jesus 
who died and rose and reigns and lives and will forevermore and keep his promises toward us. All this we leave in your good and very, very capable hands. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.